Welcome to More Than Amused Podcast, a podcast all about women and the arts, hosted by Stani and Sadie. Join us as we explore what it's like being a female artist, examine modern day problems, and educate ourselves and you on important and forgotten female artists of the past. Hello, everyone. Welcome to More Than Amused Podcast. My name is Sadie. And I'm Stani. Should we introduce ourselves? I'm a graphic designer. And I'm a singer and songwriter. And every week we talk about women who were forgotten by history, who created beautiful art that we never talk about and that we never learned about in school. Exactly. We were both in our bachelor's degrees in music history classes, art history classes. And you know what? There was no stories about women. And we both had a feeling that it wasn't because they weren't there because they are. They are there. Yeah. We learned just enough about them to realize that there was more that were being completely overlooked because, you know, history is written by the victors and for hundreds and hundreds of years that has been men. So now we are here to uncover their stories do a deep dive, and share their amazing lives with you. And my favorite thing about this is we are not experts. We took history (laughs) classes, but neither of us are history majors. Mm -hmm. And so one of our favorite things is we get to learn along with all of you. We learn new things every week. We get to talk to you guys about it, and then we get to hear how you all feel about it. And it's, it's fun. It's like a little collaborative group of people who just enjoy learning about forgotten women. I know. And I mean, I just love it too, because I feel like the more we're doing this podcast, the more just in general I'm learning. Mm -hmm. And I'm now just a much more well-rounded person. We talk about this all the time. Yes, I know. I feel like I'm one of those like losers who misses school. Yeah, (laughs) me too. Like so many people on Instagram talk lately about how like they're so glad they dropped out of college and everything. And like, I miss college. I miss like going and sitting down in a class and learning new stuff every week. No, literally this morning, I told Jordan, I was like, maybe I should go get a master's degree. Literally me last week. (laughs) But like that way I can come on more than amused and be like, yeah, I have a, you know, master's degree in art music history. But I was like, I don't really know what master's degree out there would like fit into the very like niche music history through the lens of feminism but like Uh, i don't want to just like learn all about like classical music history yeah chopin yeah women's studies i don't know i probably will not get a master's degree (laughs) i was looking into getting a master's degree and one of the pluses is i was like oh my gosh there's so many cool art history classes i could take well the uh, thing is though is jordan who if you're new here is my husband he did get a master's degree and he was like you know what as somebody who did go to graduate school i can tell you that i could have learned everything that i did learn just by like googling things and reading books for six months and he was like that's what you're doing with more than a muse so you do enough research and you read enough books like uh, like you're fine i was like but then okay. i don't have a fancy little degree to hang on my wall listen <laughs> my ego kind of needs it i'm kind mm. of a sucker for people telling me i did a good job <laughs> yeah that's why i love school yeah, <laughs> yeah. no for real anyways oh. well if you are not new here sorry for the introduction you obviously know we have been doing this whole time but yeah we've gotten some new listeners lately and so we wanted to just remind everybody what we're doing what our purpose is and if you are new here welcome we have an entire back catalog of amazing like stories 200 episodes almost 
<laughs> yeah, yeah sometimes i'm like oh wow we've been doing this for a while but yeah a lot of amazing stories a lot of just cool topics that we've covered and so yeah hope you stick around and can we just put a little note in here that like a lot of the times we hear that when people are going back to look at our past episodes they'll click mm-hmm. on names they recognize yes i challenge you this week to click on one that you don't go back find an episode about a person you've never heard of in your life and like click on them because that's the whole point of this podcast and yet the people whose names aren't mentioned very often are often our lowest rated (laughs) episodes because people don't recognize the name from the title and that is the point yeah (laughs) so yeah i love covering the icons but yeah sometimes it's like oh of course those are the ones that everybody clicks on when like yeah our whole purpose here is to highlight the people that no one's heard of yeah exactly so especially this month we are focusing on black history month so the people we cover will of course be black women and that is a great opportunity to learn about someone that you've never heard of before we actually have a spotify account that you can do playlists of podcast episodes and we have one for black history month so Mm -hmm. you can go and listen to that if you're looking to learn more about women who have contributed to black art history yes and then another oh my gosh i feel like we're doing so much like business <laughs> no. before the episode but stani created a goodreads more than amused book club and I you did. should join that because every month we read a book or we read a short story or something in relation to you know what we're doing here women in the arts i actually want to shout out the one we're doing this yes. yeah this month it's shine bright a very personal history of black women in pop it's by danielle smith and yeah that is the book we are reading this month go read along with us if you would like i'm so excited to read it they have the paperback coming out in like two weeks and so i pre-ordered it at my local bookstore this morning so go that's awesome yes go and read along with us and at the end of february we'll do an episode talking about it so yes and that will also be in conjunction with our annual grammys recap so that's Uh, gonna be a good episode that you'll want to tune into Amazing. Well, who are we learning about today, Stani? We are learning about Elizabeth Hobbs Keckley, and she is a seamstress, an activist, and a writer who actually was the personal dressmaker of Mary Todd Lincoln. Wow. Okay, that's cool. Yeah, this is a trigger warning right off the bat. We will be talking about slavery and the assassination of Lincoln and racism. Um, Just a not great time of part of history. (laughs) Yeah, I feel like it's kind of a given, but I am going to warn you, like, yes, with slavery, that also comes like physical and sexual abuse. I'm not going to be going into detail about it, but we will be talking about it because it was such a huge part, sadly, of like that time period in America and definitely plays into like the life that she had. Just a warning if that's too much for you. I totally understand. We never go into detail. This isn't like a true crime podcast, (laughs) but we will be mentioning it. And to start off, I wanted to talk about Abraham Lincoln for a little bit because I feel like I learned a lot about him and it was very eye-opening and not necessarily in a good way. I'm honestly here for that. (laughs) Yeah, I was like, okay, because everyone knows that like Lincoln is looked at like the pillar of anti-racism for early America, right? Yeah. And he's not really like the example that he should be. Like obviously the Emancipation Proclamation, whatever. Very important. Yeah. And he did do a lot to like make steps for that. But he like 
didn't start out like this hero of racism that a lot of people believe in, like anti-slavery. So here's an article I found that's like five things you may not know about Abraham Lincoln. Is it five things that are going to disappoint me about Abraham Lincoln? Yeah. (laughs) But it's like very realistic. I feel like it just takes like your elementary education and just goes, but, you know, actually. And then you're like, oh, okay. Okay. You know, not as maybe devastating as Elvis but like <laughs> yeah or maybe they're all i don't know i just feel like so many men from history that you're like they are the great ones the older you get the more you're like oh okay yeah. you're like oh no actually everyone just kind of sucks a little and that's like you said at the beginning the winners write the history books so yep. yeah really sucks anyway it's from the history channel so i feel pretty great about it being accurate But the first one is Lincoln was not an abolitionist. A lot of people assume that he was, but he was not. He did believe that slavery was morally wrong. So that's one thing that he was like, it is wrong to own people. But the Constitution, of course, sanctioned slavery. They even allowed like the Fugitive Slave Clause and the Three-Fifths Clause, Mm -hmm. which you can learn more about that later or somewhere else but basically they wrote in the constitution was it all, every black citizen or just black men hold on let's google it yeah i'm like crap i did a lot of googling but i did not look into the specifics of our government you're good the three-fifths compromise i remember this so vaguely i just saw a video about it but i can't remember the details they counted three-fifths of each state slave's population so okay, it would so have it was been every for, person yeah any For just the slaves, they only counted three-fifths of the population. There was like a whole argument about whether or not they should count as half a person or like a fourth of a person or something. And literally the argument they came up with is that they could count as three-fifths. And the purpose behind that was they didn't want the southern states to get more representation in the federal government because, you Mm -hmm. know, like a population determines how many representatives you get. Yes. And they didn't want them to have more based on their slave population. It's obviously messed up, but Lincoln didn't identify as an abolitionist because even though he knew that like slavery was wrong, he didn't know what to do about it, where abolitionists immediately knew like slavery should be immediately abolished and freed (laughs) and they should be incorporated as equal members of society. So the fact that like he didn't know what to do about slavery means that he didn't really identify as an abolitionist. Mm-hmm. However, he did say that he, like, considered himself working alongside them. And when they did eventually have the Emancipation Proclamation and the 13th Amendment, then he kind of was considered an abolitionist. I mean, that to me seems like, oh, it's popular now. So exactly. now I <laughs> believe in like this. That was, years and years and years later. So, yeah. I mean, the second one was that Abraham Lincoln didn't believe that black people should have the same rights as white people. So even though he didn't believe in slavery, he definitely was a racist. He did agree with the phrase that all men are created equal, but he didn't think that that meant that they should have the same social and political rights. Like he opposed black people having the right to vote, to serve on juries, to hold office, and to intermarry with whites, which obviously is awful and extremely racist but he did believe that black men had the right to improve their condition in society and enjoy the fruits of their labors so like to work earn money however towards the very end of his life he did argue for any man who had served in the union during the civil war to have the right to vote which included black men 
Okay. But that's very, like, limited in my opinion. Be like, (laughs) black men who serve their country in the union can vote. Then they get the right to vote. He also had this really crazy idea that I'd never heard of before. They definitely did not teach this in school. This is the third reason. But apparently it was super popular among, like, Thomas Jefferson and Henry Clay. They didn't think that, like, black and white people could live together in peace. And so they literally wanted to free all of the African-American population, like the entire black American population, Mm -hmm. and send them off to another place to live. Oh. Yeah. Like he literally argued that they should free all of the slaves and send them to Liberia. And that was like a really popular, well, like controversial, but like really popular opinion at the time for people who did believe in like freeing the slaves. (laughs) They like believed that they should just send them away. He even said that, like, given the differences between the two races and the hostile attitudes of white people towards black people, he argued it would be better for both of us to be separated. Obviously, black leaders and abolitionists did not agree because African-Americans and black Americans were as much natives of the country as the white people, which yes. is very true because neither of us were native. <laughs> like, <laughs> Yeah, if we want to play that game... Yeah. We do not, like, yeah, they do not win. <laughs> Nobody belongs here except yeah. for the Native Americans. But he, once again, after the Emancipation Proclamation, he never publicly mentioned colonization ever again. But I just feel like, again, that's because he knew it was unpopular, not because maybe that's, like, not what he actually believed. Like, it was yes. just a political move. It wasn't, like, a moral stance he was taking. And exactly, that's kind of what leads to the Emancipation Proclamation in general. That's the fourth one. The Emancipation Proclamation was basically put into place because it would weaken the Confederacy so that Mm -hmm. they wouldn't be able to fight against the Union anymore. So it was just a military move, and that kind of sucks. Like, obviously, he didn't believe in slavery, so I think, like, it was something he was happy with passing, But at the end of the day, the timing of it was just so that it would undermine the Confederacy and then Mm -hmm. the Union would have a new source of manpower to crush the rebellion. Yeah. And also, I think I've heard, too, like, it didn't actually free any slaves because... That's the last one. Okay, sorry. (laughs) No, you're good. You know your American history. (laughs) I do vague... Yeah, I do know that Lincoln sucks. (laughs) He's not the hero we think he is. Number five, yeah, the Emancipation Proclamation didn't free all of the enslaved people. No. So it didn't apply to border slave states like Delaware, Maryland, Kentucky, and Missouri that were all loyal to the Union. Missouri at the time actually had two competing governments, one that was loyal to the Union and one that was loyal to the Confederacy, which is weird to me because then how did we not end up with a North and South Missouri? We could have had one more state. And it didn't immediately free a single enslaved person because it just like said, all of the slaves are free, but that didn't actually like, but, like do what anything. A, yeah. Because the southern states had control over their states and they were fighting against the Union and that's where the majority of the slaves were. So it was kind of just like a big statement, like almost a PR statement, Mm -hmm. because it didn't actually do anything. But it did end up like changing a lot of things. A lot of people believe that it changed Lincoln's views on slavery because after that he was considered like an abolitionist he never mentioned a lot of those previous things before and so it could have been like a turning point for him personally but yeah because they had over 200,000 black men that served in the union army and navy and then it also led to the eventual 13th amendment that abolished Mm. slavery forever I mean, listen, I guess like I was going to say, like, it's like the opposite of the road to hell is paved with good intentions. It's like bad intentions, but 
it was the road it's like the opposite of that you know what i mean yeah like they didn't have good intentions but hey at least eventually it was a domino effect to a good thing you're right it's almost like the road to anti-slavery was paved with with bad intentions racism (laughs) (laughs) yeah oh gosh yeah I just it's funny because I think in elementary he's like hailed as such a hero and then mm-hmm. you just never learn about any of this no so. definitely not there you go not so fun facts about Lincoln and that will come into play because like I said Elizabeth Keckley worked very closely with the Lincoln family yeah I'm intrigued yes so let's dive into her life okay so Elizabeth Keckley was born into slavery in February 1818 in Dinwiddie County Courthouse, Virginia, just south of Petersburg. She actually was the only child of her mother, Agnes, who was a light-skinned black woman. This, like, everything in history, they felt the need to really specify when someone had a fairer complexion. Mm-hmm. So that also comes up a lot because it was a huge mark of privilege at mm-hmm. the time if you were even able to pass as like slightly less black yeah. than you were. So her mother was a light-skinned black woman whose white ancestors were members of the planter class. So she had some white ancestry. Her mother, nicknamed Aggie, was a house slave who had learned to read and write even though it was illegal for enslaved people. And that one's rule always weirded me out like reading and writing like why was because it's educated i know it makes you more educated and then people who are educated are a threat i guess stupid rule but she made clothes for 82 people on like i think a regular basis it was the 12 members of the burwell family that they were enslaved by and then the 70 people that they enslaved 70 Yep. The worst part about this, you'll notice I haven't mentioned a father yet. That's because her father was Armistead Burwell. And she didn't know that until right before her mother died. Obviously, they don't know the nature of their relationship, but how many guesses does it take? Well, I mean, here's the thing. Like, whatever the nature of the relationship and it's like, if the act was technically consensual, that's like not even the point because it's like, power dynamics yeah like obviously no matter what it is it's not consensual in a way you know like it's it's bad no matter what agreed and this was not like an uncommon thing like these men would own slaves and talk about how like they weren't even people and then would literally like rape all of the women that like it's just so messed up but yeah she found out right before her mother died that he actually was her father he permitted agnes to marry george pleasant hobbs who was another literate enslaved man who lived and worked at a neighbor's house and then this is also another sucky part sorry none of this is happy i promise there will be happy parts in the story but this part is really dark hobbs's owner moved far away and so he was separated from his wife and they were never reunited that is so sad yeah right like not only the fact that she had to like ask for permission to marry someone but then the fact that like his family can just move away and then you never Mm -hmm. see your spouse ever again they wrote letters back and forth for a really long time though so that's cute i guess and as an adult elizabeth noted that the most precious mementos of her existence are the faded old letters that he wrote to Mm. her mom Mm -hmm. because it just like they were full of hope and that the future would bring brighter days yay that's nice so Keckley, like her mother, was enslaved by Burwell, who was her father, who was actually a colonel in the War of 1812. 
and then his wife, Mary. She lived in the Burwell house with her mother and began working when she was four, which is not old enough to have a job. The Burwells had four children under the age of 10, and she was basically the nursemaid for their infant, Elizabeth Margaret. I think at the age of four, which I don't know why you would entrust a four-year-old to take care of an infant, but okay. She also was like punished extremely harshly if she failed to care properly for the baby. Like one time she accidentally tipped the cradle over too far and the infant rolled onto the floor and Mary Mm -hmm. Burwell beat her severely. And Mm -hmm. as she grew up, she eventually moved into the role of helping her mother make clothes. At the age of 14, in 1832, she was sent on a generous loan to live with and serve the eldest Burwell son, Robert, in Chesterfield County. I don't know. So much of this is weird, too, because I'm like, okay, her half-brother. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, mm-hmm. they obviously, like, didn't know, or if they didn't know, they didn't care because it just wasn't ever put in that perspective. Or, I mean, if if they knew, I'm sure it was definitely, like, the thing. It's like, you don't speak of, like, we don't acknowledge yeah. this. Like, this, Yeah. Exactly. Just really weird. Anyway, so he had just gotten married to Anna Robertson and she was the only servant for their family. And the new bride was like really mad about Keckley being there. She Mm. had obvious contempt for her. They think some of it might have been because like she had obvious white ancestry, like you could tell. Like like I mentioned, Mm. her mother had white ancestry and then she was half white from her father. And so, you know, like you could tell that she wasn't I don't know how to phrase it, but like she had white ancestry and it was pretty easy to tell that. And then also it's believed that Keckley resembled Robert. I don't know to what degree, but like that would probably make things a little uneasy if you're like, she looks like you. Then you can't just pretend it's not real. Yeah. There has to be almost like some acknowledgement of it, at least mentally. Like, obviously, they weren't going to like say anything, but anyways. Yeah. And that's why it's just kind of an assumption. They don't really know what mm-hmm. made her so mad. But she made life really unpleasant for Keckley, who, mind you, was only 14 years old. They moved to Hillsboro, North Carolina, and Robert was a minister there. And he also operated the Burwell School for Girls from his home. And he did that for about 20 years. But the entire time, Margaret was like desirous to wreak vengeance upon her, is what Keckley said. So she enlisted this neighbor, William J. Bingham. And she said that she needed help subduing Elizabeth's stubborn pride, which you can tell what that will entail. So it's about to get a little dark. When Keckley was 18, Bingham called her to his quarters and ordered her to undress so that he could beat her. She refused, saying she was fully grown and you shall not whip me unless you prove the stronger. No one has the right to whip me but my own master and nobody shall do it if I can prevent it. He bound her hands and beat her and then sent her back with bleeding welts on her back. And then he did it again the next day until he was exhausted. Full-grown man, exhausted. That's when he stopped. And then a week later, he did it again. And while she suppressed her tears and cries, he did it the next week. And then in the middle of it, burst into tears and declared that it would be a sin to beat her anymore, asked for her forgiveness, and said that he would never beat her again. And she said he never did. Hmm. I don't know what took him five times before he realized it was a sin, but... Yeah. Wow. But I guess at least there was, like, some sudden realization. Tiny little benefits, right? You gotta look for them, I guess. I guess. And then right after that, she was given to her owner's friend, Alexander M. Kirkland. He was a prominent white man of the community, and he 
raped her for four years. She called it just a time of suffering and deep mortification. She ended up having a son from this whole thing, and she actually named him George after her stepfather. So the man that had written those beautiful love letters to her mother. She actually wrote about it in her book that we'll talk about later, but she wrote, For four years, a white man, I will spare the world his name, had base designs upon me. I do not care to dwell upon the subject, for it is one that is fraught with pain. Suffice to say that he persecuted me for four years, and I I became a mother. Oh, my God. Yeah. Yeah, wow. Yes. I think it's very wise of her that not only did she spare the world his name in her memoir, she also spared her son his name because she mm. adored her son. And that is definitely told throughout the rest of her life, despite the circumstances of his birth. After that, I think it was just a couple of years later, she was returned to Virginia to marry an Armistead Burwell's daughter, Anne Burwell Garland, so her half-sister, and then her husband, Hugh A. Garland. And she ended up with them, I think, for the rest of the time she was enslaved. They moved several times and ended up in St. Louis. And they brought her with them and her son. And I think her mom at that time, her mom was still alive. So they did child care and sewing for the family. And this part's crazy to me. Elizabeth actually became an accomplished seamstress and by working long hours earned money for the Garland family who had 17 people because they had a huge problem with finances during that time. Oh. So she was literally supporting the family who was enslaving her. Wow. I think it probably was like a common practice at that time, to be honest, because they'd be like, well, whatever you earn is ours. And so. Yeah, that's what I was just thinking that. I was like, I wonder how common that was, because, yeah, if they have a skill you know, yeah. that's a trade as a seamstress. She's literally been doing it her whole life. Like, of course, she's going to be good at this. Yep. Just wow. So it's just crazy. But it did end up like benefiting her in some way. She had 12 years there where she mingled with the large free black population. So there was mm. a large population of free black people in St. Louis that really helped her establish connections. And then also she made a lot of connections with women in the white community who needed sewing done. Hmm. And she was later able to pull on that when she became a dressmaker. Um, while she was living there, she also was reacquainted with someone that she'd known from Virginia named James Keckley. You'll recognize his last name. He portrayed himself as a free man. Apparently he wasn't, but at the time she did believe he was. And so she didn't want to marry him until her and her son were free because she didn't want to have another child born into slavery. So she went to Huey Garland and asked if he would free them and he refused. And so for two years, she worked to try and persuade them to allow her to buy her own freedom for her and her son. And in 1852, he finally agreed to release them for $1,200, which doesn't sound like a lot, but it is the equivalent of $34,000, almost 35. It's 34899 Wow. And that's in 2021 is when they did the conversion. So oh, I assume okay. it's probably more now. <laughs> <laughs> Inflation. <laughs> but that's a lot of money. That's yeah. like an entire that's crazy. year of like crazy so his wife ended up putting the conditions in writing and then her apparently she had a patron named elizabeth le bourgeois i think who had been ordering things from her but she took a collection among her friends to loan to keckley who was then able to buy her and her son's freedom 
And then she paid back the loan that she was given to buy the freedom over time. So she stayed in St. Louis and repaid the loan. And then, of course, right after they got freed, she married James Keckley. And then they were allowed to marry. They were married for eight years. During that time, she found out he was still enslaved, which was not great because it was a huge break on her trust. And he also wasn't a very helpful partner. So he relied really heavily on her support. He was subject to abuse. And Mm. so at the end of when the loan was repaid and all of that was done, she planned to leave St. Louis and him. But he died, Oh, I think, from being drunk. It says due to his excesses. So I think he might have drank too much and... I don't want to be like, oh, good. Like, that's a horrible thing to say, but... (laughs) I mean, he was abusive and a liar, so... Yeah, I was like, for her, I... Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. It's kind of a bummer, though, because, like, her name is Elizabeth Hobbs Keckley, and I almost just want to call her, like, Elizabeth Hobbs, because I'm like... Yeah, true. That's her father's name, who she, like, adored and named her son after, you know? Well, like, her stepfather, but still, like, her father, you know? No, yeah, the one who raised her and loved her. Yeah. But, yeah. Anyway, so... In 1860, after this whole mess, she enrolled her son, George Kirkland, in the newly established Wilberforce University in Ohio, and then she moved to Baltimore, Maryland, where she stayed for six weeks, and her plan was while she was there, she was going to teach young colored women her method of cutting and fitting dresses, Hmm. but found that there wasn't enough people who could afford to pay for that in order to earn a sufficient living, which is Mm. fair. Like, slavery was still very much so in effect. So... She moved to Washington and wanted to work there as a seamstress, but found out that apparently you had to have a license. And the license was for a free black man to remain in the city for more than 10 or 30 days, which is also weird. So I think they were only allowed 10 or 30. That's a big gap. I don't know all the logistics of this. This time period had really weird laws. Uh, obviously. But one of her patrons that she'd been making dresses for, Miss Ringhold, she petitioned the mayor for a license for Keckley, and he granted it to her free of charge. Wow. Okay, that's yeah. cool. So pays to have connections. Ringhold, a member of General John Mason's family from Virginia, also vouched that Keckley was a free woman, which was another requirement for residence. So she okay. was like, no, I know she's free. Like, she can stay here. So she stayed there in Washington, built a client base. This is and- Washington, D.C., not Washington State, right? Yeah. Okay, cool. I just wanted to make sure I'm thinking of the right spot. <laughs> <laughs> no, you're good. It only specifies it as Washington. I don't think it was officially like the District of Columbia, but this yeah. was before the state of Washington existed. Oh, Yes, that's on the other side of the country. And now we get back to we are not experts. <laughs> no, you're good. They hadn't even purchased Louisiana yet, I don't think. Right? Oh, what? No. When was the Louisiana purchase? I don't know, actually. <laughs> There's no way. But wasn't that Teddy Roosevelt? And this is Lincoln. He was the 16th. Wait, the oh, Louisiana purchase was 1803. Yeah, that was so really was early. 60 years ago. But they that's hadn't okay. made it as far as Washington yet. You're right. Dang. All right, moving on. Crazy. (laughs) Anyway, so she built her client base there, and when she completed a silk dress for Mary Anna Curtis Lee, who was the wife of Robert E. Lee, she was planning on wearing this dress to a dinner party for the Prince of Wales. Lee was complimented profoundly for her dress, and then Keckley's business grew rapidly. That's so. She was actually able to employ twenty seamstresses at her Twelfth Street business. This was. 20 an empire that's, yeah that's yes. a big business 
And then she was able to start passing off a lot of the like smaller jobs to other seamstresses so that they can make more dresses. And she focused most of her attention on fitting garments for the people that came in. She okay. had a real talent for draping the fabric and fitting them. The Smithsonian actually is quoted saying she was known to be the dressmaker in D.C. because her garments had an extraordinary fit. So that's what she was known for. So she did that part and then left a lot of the sewing up to her 20 employees. Yeah, that's incredible. Her dresses were actually considered to be expensive. Yet sometimes she made much more money from the commissions for the manufacture of the fabric than the actual construction of the article of clothing. Oh, wow. So I think she like marked up the fabric costs or just charged more for them. I don't Good. know. <laughs> Yeah, good for her. During the time she lived at a boarding house owned by her friend and her friend's husband, Mr. and Mrs. Walker Lewis, who was a caterer and a steward who also had freed himself. And then she also had residential rooms at her business on 12th Street. So she lived there as well for a while. She was really close with the boarding house owners. She was actually present for one of the birth of their daughters. And they made her the godmother of their daughters. Aww. And she made the christening gowns. For her little goddaughter. That's sweet. And that actually, that little gown is in the National Museum of American History. Oh, Which cool. is adorable. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And uh, when Lewis passed away, she ended up helping raise the girls as well. So they were kind of like her de facto daughters in a yeah. way. We're going to take a quick break just to spotlight one of our new favorite women artists. So this person that I am spotlighting today. It's so N letter, the letter N press, sewn press, but I, it, I think it's like so in press, S-E-W, sorry, I did that <laughs> the most confusing way possible, <laughs> S-E-W-N-P-R-E-S-S, so in okay, press. Okay, cool. Yeah. So like, it's like so apostrophe N press. N press. Get yes. Got okay. It, got it. So I love her account. The artist's name is Chrissy. And she has a lot of stickers and designs that she has, but a lot of them are like relevant specifically to like being a doula or birthing or, you know. Yeah. And so I don't know necessarily if she is a doula. I would imagine so. But I like looked everywhere on her Instagram and in her account and I, I didn't see it. But anyways, I'm not exactly sure necessarily like what her background is, but a lot of her stickers and a lot of her designs, like I said, it's all relating somewhere to that. Like, for example, it's like Black Births Matter. You can talk to me about birth, normalize home birth, doula, um, your own advocate, like just all different yeah. things. And a lot of beautiful images of Black mothers and Black women who are pregnant. And like I said, I don't know if she's a doula. I really want to know. But like the artwork is absolutely beautiful of like her line pregnant drawings. women. Yes. Are stunning. I know. I like, they're love my favorite. the lime drawings. They're so drawings. pretty. Yes. Maybe this is just something that she's particularly really passionate about, which is amazing. And it's like cool that she has such much beautiful designs like relating to this. So yeah, I had to incredible. share. Mm -hmm. She has an Etsy. Yes. Thank you. So she does have an Etsy shop where she has her designs. You can like get a mug, you know, like all these designs you can get on mm -hmm. everything. And I agree. I love the line art the most. It's it's beautiful so pretty sent so. such a good message and such a good message yes yeah talking about informed consent everyone deserves to have a safe informed educated birth i agree mm -hmm. exactly that's awesome so 
go check her out. I found an organization. It's very cool. Let me find it again. Okay, it is Black Women Photographers, and that is the handle and name Excellent. of the page. And it's actually founded by a woman named Polly Arungu, I think is how you say her name. I'm sorry if it's wrong, but her account is actually private, so I think this is probably the best the way best to see place. what she's up to. But yes. they focus on providing free education, resources, grants, and community for Black creatives in 60-plus countries. Mm, which I wow. cannot even name 60 plus countries. So, <laughs> so that's just awesome. And then a lot of like big companies have used their directory to like hire black women photographers, including the New York Times, Peloton, Nike, that's World cool. Athletics. Yeah. So on their page, they feature a lot of members. The list rotates monthly, but they also have a full directory that you can go and look at. Amazing. And it just tells about the photographer and their location i think it has links to like their portfolio and their work Mm. so that you can like find more women of color in the world of photography to hire that is cool yeah so amazing plus all the like educational work and everything yes and i was gonna say and if you can imagine the photographs on this instagram they're all like it's so such a variety of like styles and what's being photographed but like yeah they're all amazing so yeah they're beautiful so Mm. just a gorgeous account to follow in general but yeah i love it i think it's a great resource if you're looking to hire a photographer i think it's wonderful inspiration if you are a photographer or just any kind of artist in general if you enjoy looking at beautiful photography then go check it out all right now back to the show She also had the client Adele Cutts Douglas, who was the wife of Stephen A. Douglas. A lot of political names I think I'm dropping here. They all sound familiar. But Mm -hmm. she also became the favored family seamstress of Verena Davis, who was the wife of the senator, Jefferson Davis. And then she made clothing for her and all of her children. And then Davis provided the introduction to Margaret McLean, who was the daughter of General Edwin Foss Sumner. And then McLean offered to introduce her to the newly elected President Abraham Lincoln and his wife. Oh, And that's how she ended up meeting. Here we are. Yes. Yeah. So she hired seamstresses to help finish a dress for McLean because she wasn't able to do it in time. And then in turn, McLean introduced her to Mary Todd Lincoln. Wow. So yeah, lots of like political play going in there with your seamstress. I was like, I'm like trying to like connect the dots of like, oh, okay. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, literally. I feel like it sounds exactly like the political games always do where it's like, oh, well, if you do this for me, then I'll introduce you to this person and that Mm -hmm. will help you build your career. You know, like it's all just politics. Yeah. They were playing the game behind the scenes in order to get their dresses made on time. But she met Mary Todd Lincoln on March 4th, 1861. And it was actually the day of Abraham Lincoln's first inauguration and then had an interview the following day. And Lincoln chose her as her personal modiste and personal dresser. Wow. Yeah. And that's a huge honor, of course. But the first lady. Yeah, right. Keckley's clothing was a simplified Victorian fashion, which was very sophisticated, had clean lines, not a lot of ribbon or lace. And Mary Todd Lincoln became known for having clothes with floral patterns, bright colors, and youthful styling. And the dresses made by Keckley were like for her sophisticated events because of course Mm. they were expensive so they were for like the fancy you know moments that a first lady has there are very few examples of keckley's work 
because back then people would take material from existing dresses to make new ones. It was a very common practice. Oh, interesting. It makes sense. It's honestly like a very sustainable I was just going to say like that is actually very sustainable. Yes. Yeah. And like the fabric was really expensive and high quality. So you could actually like cut off the parts that got ruined on the hem and then like create a whole new dress for it. Especially like mothers could turn one of their dresses into like three dresses for their children. I was going to say like what a way to fight fast fashion like you can yeah. still stay trendy you just keep using the same fabrics over and over especially because like dresses. nothing could be made quickly back then like mm, everything yeah, had to be true. sewn by hand and fitted to you so it makes perfect sense but that yeah. means that we don't have like a lot of examples of what her work actually looked like also mm-hmm. because like labeling clothes wasn't common like they didn't have a tag oh, that was like yeah. this is from h&m you know? yeah or like so, this is elizabeth keckley <laughs> yeah that wasn't like a common practice so we don't have ways to identify a lot of the dresses that have survived and it's not like photographs were as common you know like there were yeah. photographs but it wasn't like every yep. occasion and everything but that's kind of what's cool about her being the seamstress for miss lincoln is that some of those things have survived the test of yeah. time because of the significance of it belonging to a first lady so there's actually like a purple velvet gown that she wore to her husband's second inauguration that's in the oh, smithsonian cool. And then the Chicago History Museum has a buffalo plaid green and white day dress with a cape that she made. I just searched up her dresses and yes, yes. (laughs) I I love them. (laughs) And then there's also a black silk dress with a strawberry motif from strawberry parties. Apparently, strawberry parties were a thing. Why don't we do those anymore? Um, Yeah, that's believed to have been made by Keckley as well. And that's in the Abraham Lincoln Presidential Library and Museum in Illinois. This is such a side note. I apologize if it did happen and you are going to be bringing it up later. But like, wasn't the theme for the Met Gala a couple years ago, like America, a lexicon of fashion? Did we have an Elizabeth Keckley dress? Like, was yes, Sarah Jessica Parker. Amazing. Just that note. I was going to mention the end, but yeah, Sarah Jessica Parker wore a dress that was inspired by Elizabeth okay, Keckley's fashions. Cool. I was going to be so annoyed if it didn't get that because this is like the yeah. obvious, amazing option to you know do here. I'm so honestly that's good. like a little annoyed that there wasn't more. <laughs> yeah, that theme. I remember being so disappointed by it. Yeah, like reading about her and then finding out that it was only Sarah Jessica Parker that did it. And I was kind of like, really? We could have had a lot more. If I am ever invited to the Met Gala and that ever so happens to be the theme again, catch me in a a rework, a redesign of the purple velvet. Right. Elizabeth Keckley dress. That is What is more American than that? You know, like literally. So that's so cool. A lot of people went the whole like, 50s 60s starlet route i get it Boring. but yeah it's been done <laughs> so yeah this yeah. is so much cooler mm-hmm. okay sorry for no you're good i just was wondering looking at the dresses i was like please this has to have a you know Met Gala <laughs> moment. Good. whatever actually like speaking of images on google mm-hmm. one of the most common ones you'll actually see is mary todd lincoln wearing an off-the-shoulder dress that keckley made when you google oh, cool. elizabeth hobbs keckley a picture of Mary Todd Lincoln wearing this like beautiful like floral kind of dress okay that's off the shoulder it's black mm-hmm. and white 
that one will come up and that was a really big deal she went to matthew brady's washington photography studio oh, in 1961 yeah. so that's like mm-hmm. a surviving photograph we have of this dress that was made yeah that her. is beautiful yeah, wow it's really pretty <gasps> never mind that's the one that i would have <laughs> right. made for my met gala 100 <laughs> that screams met gala the hoop oh. skirt the ruffles along the bottom the sleeves and the hair piece with the yep. flowers 100 percent. oh what an icon i love these dresses yes and this is just a nice little reminder for all of you that i will be posting pictures on our instagram yes. <laughs> so Ha-ha. if you want to see those that's the place to go absolutely so keckley actually had a very like prominent place right like she's Mm -hmm. the first lady's modiste and she was known for being extremely ladylike and being like almost regal and so lincoln like really adored her and she became her best friend wow and so she would visit their living quarters she would be in attendance during private family conversations a lot of the time she was asked to help the president fix his hair so that he would look presentable because he had like really unruly hair Mm -hmm. and she wrote later that she really loved lincoln for the way that he would treat her he said that he had a really kind manner and he treated her like the white people that were around the house so that's good yeah like he was nice (laughs) yeah so there's a good thing during this time it was actually like another kind of tragedy struck keckley's only child george kirkland he obviously had a really pale complexion and that goes back to we talked about how like keckley's mother had some white ancestry she was half white and then her son of course was also half white so at Mm. that point like his complexion was like white passing i guess is what you would call it he was more than three quarters white and so he was able to enlist as a white in the union army of 1861 after the war broke out and he was a private in the first missouri volunteer infantry but he ended up passing away during the Battle of Wilson's Creek on August 10th, 1861. And <laughs> this part sucks. She like, at that time, they would give you pension as a survivor if you were like a family member. But mm-hmm. she had a really hard time establishing that he was her son because like she was black and he was like white passing oh, and like enlisted yeah. as a white. And so they were like, well, he can't be your son. He enlisted as a white. And then she had to be like, he was more than three quarters white. Like, I'm whatever yeah. white, you know, like he was my son. But eventually she was able to get it. And that was $8 a month. And then they later raised it to $12 a month, which is the equivalent of $264 a month. And she actually lived on that for quite a while when she was unable to work because that was the only income she had towards the end of her life. Oh. So it ended up being like a huge tender mercy that she had it. But she did lose her son in the war. Also, okay, I'm sure you might go into this, but like the only income that she had at the end of her life as the personal dressmaker for the first lady, like, I just, I'm like, okay, and that's not on her. Like, I'm not saying like, wow, she was bad at managing her finances. Like, no, 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 no. Like, something is very wrong here. Well, yeah, it just shows you, like, how difficult it was because, like, her Mm -hmm. only surviving child, and, like, usually your children would take care of you, her only child died in the war. Oh, yeah. She didn't have a husband. Yeah. Her parents were already dead, and, like, so there was no descendants and no ancestors, like, to take care of her. She was completely on her own towards the end of her life, and so, like... I think that that just shows, like, how bad a situation can be for someone despite 
how hard they try and like how much they do like mm-hmm. yeah just and really like you can like, literally get to the top of it but i don't know yeah the, like, not to be like and it's and... still hopeless but like <laughs> i don't yeah, know it just it just sucks i think that especially shows like the law was not set up for women and it was especially not set up for women of color like it was so biased towards men mm-hmm. and married women as well and and white and women is yeah. yeah so just really messed up but ended up being a huge tender mercy so thank heavens they actually had like army pension and everything Mm-hmm. So in 1862, the District of Columbia, so just D.C., emancipated enslaved persons. So only in D.C. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's it. And although she had much earlier purchased her own freedom in St. Louis, they mm-hmm. did have like a newspaper article about previously enslaved people who had become a success and she was featured. Okay. So that's kind of cool. cool. Some press for her. And then because of that, there was like an influx of previously enslaved people in Washington. And so she established the Ladies, Freedmen, and Soldiers Relief Association mm-hmm. to assist people and they were, until they were able to find a better life for themselves. Because like, okay, you're freed. You're not a slave anymore. But like, now what do you do? Yeah, now what? Uh-huh. Yeah, like that obviously puts you in a really awkward position because like, you don't have savings you weren't getting paid for what you were doing you no longer have like room and board and everything at the place you were at because you were being enslaved Enslaved. yeah uh um but then you don't really have anywhere to go just another horrible situation but she established that organization to help with it and then the lincolns actually assisted her in this whole thing and visited the contraband camps with her oh wow she actually was the one who introduced Sojourner Truth to Abraham Lincoln. Wow, that's so cool. That's cool. Mm-hmm. And then she was also with the Lincolns when they visited Richmond, Virginia after the end of the Civil War. Wow. So she was, like, really close to their family. She also, like, really helped Lincoln navigate a lot of, like, agitation and grief that she had because she had lost her son during the Civil mm-hmm. War. And then Lincoln ended up losing her son in of typhoid fever. And so they kind of had that connection and were able to, like, really connect. And also, after President Lincoln's assassination, yeah, she helped her through that a lot. She actually was one of the few recipients of stuff that was given after Lincoln's assassination of, like, personal effects. Wow. So she got Mary Lincoln's dress from the second inauguration that she made. And then she also got the blood-splattered cloak and bonnet from the night of the assassination. Whoa. I don't know if she kept the blood on it. Like, I don't know where that is. I, that's kind of like a gory gift. I'm like, do you, would you want that? I don't know. If I my, think she made it, so I think that's why it was given back to her. But like, okay, okay, okay. That's. Uh, yeah. I don't know if I'd want that back though. I know. I'd be like, can we burn it? And then she was also given some of the president's personal items. I don't know what they were. Hmm. they were given to her like i mentioned abraham lincoln was assassinated i'm just going to talk about that really quick so that was on april 14th 1865 and he was of course the 16th president of the united states he went to see a play our american cousin a ford's theater in washington dc and a well-known stage actor and a confederate sympathizer of course john wilkes booth shot him in the head as he watched the play 
So he died the following day, which sounds awful. I th- thought it was more of a sudden thing, but apparently he made it through the night and then died the next morning oh, at yeah. 7.22 a.m. in the house opposite the theater. And he was the very first president ever to be assassinated. So his funeral and burial was an extended period of national mourning, of course. And apparently this was like a huge plan that Booth and like two others, Lewis Powell and David Harold, had tried to do Mm. so booth was gonna kill lincoln and then yeah lewis powell and david harrod were gonna kill the secretary of state william h seward and then george atzerotz probably saying that wrong but he was gonna kill the vice president andrew johnson and the whole plan was that if they killed these three people like the secretary of state the president and the vice president then it would allow the confederate army to be revived oh yeah, because the war had ended, they were mad about it, so they were going to try and, like, fight back. Interesting. But the only person that actually ended up dying in this huge plot was Lincoln. Seward was only wounded, and Johnson's would-be attacker got drunk and didn't kill the vice president. Nice. So he, like, epically failed his part, but hey, it worked out. And, of course, like, Booth went on, like, a 12-day chase and everything and then ended up being killed at the end of it, and the other ones were all hung for their roles. Wow. So Keckley actually went with Mary Todd Lincoln and her children to Illinois after the assassination. And this is actually like a really sad part of history. And I feel like it it really shows also that like women weren't faring very well. Mm-hmm. Because like Mary Todd Lincoln was deeply in debt after her husband's death. Really? And, yeah. And so she started selling like jewelry and clothing to try and raise money to like live Okay, listen, I'm not here to, like, make a statement about taxes or whatever, but, like, <laughs> I just feel like that is on the American people, you know? I was mortified. I was like, your husband is assassinated as president of the United States. The first lady, and you are selling your jewelry to survive. I mean, granted, I guess, like, we had just fought a war, and so... We don't have a lot of money. I don't know. I know, but like army pension? Shouldn't that be like a thing for the president? Like he died in office. Isn't that kind of like a thing? Yeah, and I would imagine that nowadays... Okay, I don't know. I don't know if some U.S. history expert is listening and is mortified like me questioning this or not knowing but i I need to know how how was she just abandoned i don't know that's horrible there's like a few reasons why she ended up doing this obviously like she wasn't wearing anything but black after her husband's death okay and so she had a bunch of clothing befitting a first lady that she was never gonna wear again so part of that was just trying to get rid of it another thing was like they were in this awful position they were Mm -hmm. in debt basically in poverty her husband's passed away so she doesn't really have like an income anymore because like women couldn't work well and And i guess like if you're the first lady like you're not gonna have a side hustle you know (laughs) (laughs) and so insane yeah so she just tried to like sell the excess right you like Mm -hmm. try and make some up for this loss and keckley ended up helping dispose of a lot of these articles so she would like accompany her to new york help find a broker to handle the sales wow and although Lincoln was using an alias. Is that how you say it? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Alias. The fundraising effort for her family became publicly known. And then she was severely criticized because they were like, oh, you're selling clothes and other items that have to do with your husband's presidency. Like, that's so tacky. What? what? <laughs> yeah. 
It's literally so messed up. So then she was like severely criticized. And then in the end, they ended up spending more money than they actually made because they had to like travel to New York to like sell everything. And so they didn't end up making any profit. Oh my gosh. Her and Lincoln's relationship kind of fell apart for a few reasons after this. When Wilberforce College burned down, Elizabeth Keckley ended up donating all of the Lincoln memorabilia that she had had, so a lot of those personal effects and everything yeah. that she had kept in fundraising to help rebuild the oh. college after okay. the fire, which I think is very generous. She didn't have anyone else to pass it down to, so like donating it for fundraising for a good cause it sounds yeah, better than means. selling it. But Lincoln wasn't really happy about that because she was like, well, you were a close personal friend of the family, you know, and you mm. just like donate it, you know. I uh, okay. yeah. <laughs> I kind of get it. A note at this point is that slavery officially ended in December of 1865 is what I found with okay. the 13th Amendment of the Constitution. And then also during this time period, well, I guess not during the same time period, like six months later, Juneteenth is celebrated because that's when the mm. slaves actually found out they were free. And then just a few years later after that, Elizabeth Keckley actually published her book. Oh, oh, her book. Yes. Okay. I'm excited to hear about this. Yes. <laughs> So she wrote a book called Behind the Scenes, and I think it also, the subtitle is like My Year in the White House or something. Cool. Let me check. Oh, yeah. Behind the Scenes or 30 Years a Slave and Four Years in the White House. Wow. So she told a lot about her story of slavery, which is where a lot of those quotes I mentioned before came from, Mm -hmm. and then also provided a lot of insight into the lives of the Lincoln family. She talked about her slavery, then her rise to a middle-class businesswoman who was able to employ staff, and then put herself in like the educated mixed-race middle class of the black community, and -hmm. just like how she was able to overcome difficulties, develop her business sense, you know, like very valuable stuff. She also acknowledged a lot of the brutalities under slavery and the sexual abuse that led to the birth of her son but she didn't spend a lot of time on those parts she actually spent a lot of time talking about her life and contrasting her life with mary todd lincoln they called it like an unveiling of the former first lady because she talked about like her debts and a lot of people were mad because she like talked very highly of the president but then had like a cool analytical eye for mary lincoln Oh, interesting. Apparently, like, the public didn't have a lot of insight into the lives of the Lincolns, and so a lot of people thought that it wasn't, like, very nice for her to shed so much light on Mary Todd Lincoln. I mean, yeah, actually, I'm wondering what I think about that, because it doesn't sound like Mary Todd Lincoln, like, consented to her life being exposed in this way, you know? Yes, so here's why she did it. So she portrayed Lincoln as a loving wife and mother of an ambitious, strong-willed, and loyal first lady, while also Mm. talked about the fact that she was high-tempered, full of fear and anxiety, self-centered, and often self-pitying. Wow. So, I mean, like, it was a very open (laughs) expose, I guess. (laughs) The editor actually included letters from Mary Lincoln to Keckley in the book, and a lot of people were really mad about her violating Lincoln's privacy, which is fair. Yeah, interesting. But in the whole thing, her intention was to try and explain what led to the Lincoln old clothes scandal that, like, led to so much harshness against Mary Todd Lincoln of 1867. Okay. And she was trying to get some income from the book to provide financial support for Mary Todd Lincoln and her family interesting so it was done out of like good intentions i also think it's like i know that they're kind of like oh well she showed the realism behind the first lady but at the same time it's like well 
that's what she knew like she actually knew her yeah that's true Mm -hmm. and so she was just trying to describe who she actually was as a person and like her good qualities and like some of her bad ones you know and like listen if someone who knows me intimately is going to actually include me in their memoir i you know my Yikes. good traits yeah like, <laughs> if they're gonna be truthful they're we're gonna hear all about how i too am a bit self-pitying and yeah. you know all kinds of negative things but basically like the aftermath of this book being released literally oh, no. sounds like harry's memoir spare <laughs> getting marketed oh no yeah like it literally was like the insight to the royal family you know like of the time they called it a literary thunderbolt and they also called it a great sensational disclosure and one of the reasons they were so mad about it is because keckley was black well okay yeah (laughs) yeah which is so stupid but they felt that like her relationship with Lincoln didn't meet the rules of gentility and social separation of the races. Mm. And then they also felt that she had transgressed the boundaries between public and private life and like violated Victorian codes of friendship and privacy as well as race, gender and class. So basically they were just mad that like a black woman wrote so harshly about like a white woman interesting so a lot of people believed that like lincoln and keckley lost their friendship immediately after this keckley maintained that it didn't and they continued to correspond with one another but i don't think they ever had another like public relationship after this so it did kind of end it in a lot of ways also it's notable that robert lincoln who i believe was abraham lincoln's brother i think he convinced the publisher to halt the production of the book because he thought it was an embarrassment to the family so the book was published again in the early 1900s it's actually in print now it's pretty cheap so you can find it and read it obviously it was initially read for the background information on the lincoln's because everyone's like but now most people read it for the narrative of Keckley's life as a slave and a woman during oh, that time period. Because, yeah, 30 years a slave and then four years in the White House. Like, that's insane. Yeah. yeah. Obviously, the book didn't pan out super great for her, but it is an important part of American history now. So we're like really grateful for it. And she was able to continue to earn a modest living until about 1890. And then in 1892, she was actually offered a faculty position at Wilberforce University as the head of the Department and Sewing, Domestic Science and Arts. Did oh, I say cool. That? Yeah. Department of Sewing and Domestic Science Arts. Cool. There's a long title. And mm-hmm. moved to Ohio to do that. And I do believe that is the college her son attended and the one that she also helped fundraise to oh, rebuild okay. after the fire after the fire that's cool the following year she actually was able to hold an exhibit at the chicago world fair representing wilberforce and their Mm. department she did have a stroke a couple of years later in 1893 and had to resign and then returned to washington where she lived in the national home for the destitute colored women and children which she helped found and a lot of people there mentioned how cultured and polished she was how intelligent she was but also that she was very reserved, which she would be. I was just going to say, like, yeah. yeah. In May of 1907, she died as a resident of that national home. And so she literally died in the national home for destitute women. Like, Ugh. yeah. And so she passed away there and was transferred to the National Harmony Memorial Park in Landover, Maryland 
And then this part's weird. Author Jennifer Flesher wrote about how like one of the things that really is notable about the different lives between the two women, like Mary Mm -hmm. Todd Lincoln and Elizabeth Keckley, is though even though both of them spent the ends of their lives kind of in more of a destitute poverty state, Mary Lincoln lies buried in Springfield in a vault with her husband and sons. Mm -hmm. And Elizabeth Keckley's remains are gone. Gone? Yeah, we don't know where they are. I feel like that doesn't happen very often. Like... You know, like of all the people that we've covered who are like unknown, like they're still buried somewhere. Somewhere. That is. I don't weird. know where she is. Apparently, a developer paved over Harmony Cemetery where she was buried. And then when the graves were moved to a new cemetery, like her remains weren't claimed. And so they may have been marked in an unmarked grave, mm. which is sad because it's actually very akin to what happened to her mother, stepfather, and son. It's like literally her entire yeah. family. But they don't know exactly where her remains are that is weird but it also is going back to like just crazy that miss first lady is in a vault but like also was in poverty you know so it's just like interesting that in death she gets the honors those you know huge honors of you know big yeah a vault with the president yeah like i don't know i I guess i haven't really thought about how i want to be buried one day but you know like an honorary burial i don't know you know what i mean like in her life is like destitute afterwards it's just i don't know it's just, my point is this story seems like a great example of systematic failures just Agreed. everywhere one thousand percent yes <laughs> yeah they did place a marker where they believe her grave was moved to so in national harmony memorial park 103 years after her death on may 26 2010 they did place a marker there to remember her and mm-hmm. her contributions to early American history. But we don't know if that's exactly where she is. So yeah, that's her. Some like little notable things at the end is that like she did found the Contraband Relief Association, which I talked about, mm-hmm. which there's like a whole thing on that that you can definitely look into on what they did for the like colored troops is what they call them. So it was like the soldiers that served in the United States Army if they were allowed to join. And they were also able to send like food, shelter, and clothing and medical care to recently freed people because cool. they weren't considered legally free. Mm-hmm. They were, <laughs> this is dumb. They called them contrabands because they weren't legally free. So they were like contraband of war, like oh, material. Yeah. <laughs> it's messed up. But they did like distribute a ton of clothes, food, and shelter, mm-hmm. send funds to people, like helped with sick and wounded soldiers like they did so much as well as like hosting christmas dinners for sick and wounded soldiers helping place african-american teachers in newly built schools for blacks like helping Mm. continue education like it's a really big deal it ended up being lost to history so it did fall apart at some point but it helped like set standards for relief organizations to like help the displaced black community and actually like helped create Mm-hmm. the future of like relief organizations like that and that was founded by her so it's a really big deal like i mentioned a lot of her dresses are also held in museums and she also designed a quilt made from scraps of materials left over from the dresses she made for mrs lincoln which i love mm. like what better way to like commemorate the dresses you made for the first lady than like a quilt yeah And Kent State University Museum has that. And it's also shown in the book, The Threads of Time, The Fabric of History by Rosemary E. Reed Miller, which sounds amazing. And that talks about like Keckley and a bunch of other African-American designers. Ooh, maybe we should 
add that to our book club in the future i mean next year i don't know we have so many but (laughs) yeah they also feature her on the hillsborough north carolina school that she was like a part of Mm -hmm. and so that's on the website there the new york times officially published an obituary for her on december 12th 2018 as a part of their overlooked series which Mm. i think is beautiful so they like did this whole thing where they like took people who were remarkable but whose deaths went unreported by the newspaper and like did it for them later there was another person we covered that i found that yeah also was in the new york times overlook series i can't think of who it was but yeah i i totally remember that yeah i just love that i think that that's Mm -hmm. like a beautiful thing and like kudos to whoever came up with that idea like very needed and then also she has a statue at the virginia women's monument Mm. in richmond virginia that's cool and it was commemorating like contributions of virginia women to the united states of america and there is the statue of elizabeth there that seems very fitting right so yeah that's her that's amazing yeah it's a lot and also amazingly like i said sad that this story is just so much proof of all the failures you know of the world that they were in but like also that she was able to thrive in like i don't know a dressmaker in those days like what is a higher honor than literally doing the first lady's dresses you know like that's incredible no completely agree like the fact that she was able to accomplish so much despite the amount of restrictions placed Mm -hmm. upon her is amazing yeah and yeah like so infuriating to read about her life and just be like that never should have happened to anyone (laughs) no so messed up i laugh and i'm uncomfortable so every time I laugh during this episode, it was oh. because it makes me very uncomfortable. Yeah. And it should. Like, history is uncomfortable. But Yeah, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't be learning about it. Agreed. Yeah, I would highly recommend read her memoir. I did not have the time, but I have it on Kindle. I think it was only like a couple of dollars. Excellent. I was planning on covering her initially later on in the year, and so I thought I had more time. I didn't. But that's okay. But yeah, it's on Kindle. It's only 128 pages. So it's a short one. You could finish it in an afternoon if you have the time. Well, thank you so much for telling her story. And yeah, that we get to add her to the more than amuse women, I guess, of all the people we've covered. And thank you all for being here and for listening. As we mentioned, we do have a Instagram, more than amuse podcast. You can join us come check out the pictures of the pretty dresses or just go look them up yourself and you won't regret it and we will be back next week of course with another episode next monday what are we talking about next week uh (gasps) rom-coms that's right yes Mm -hmm. next week is our valentine's episode so we're diving into the world of romantic comedies i'm excited and why there haven't been a lot of good ones for many years true but also okay oh no (laughs) but there's some good ones that just came out yeah (laughs) yes yes but also i okay i'm I'm, we're saving it for next week but i have i have a take (laughs) so (laughs) that i that i wish i could say i came up with i I stole it from tiktok but that's okay i I do have a take for Yep. Okay. Anyways, we'll be back next week. (laughs)